I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Justice John Paul Stevens passed away on Tuesday at the age of 99. Justice Stevens was the second longest serving and second oldest justice to serve in Supreme Court history, as well as uh, one of the most revered. On today's episode, we remember Justice Stevens, his judicial philosophy, and some of his most influential majority opinions and dissents. And I'm so thrilled and grateful that joining us to commemorate Justice Stevens's life and legacy are two of his extremely distinguished former law clerks. Kate Shaw is professor of law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. She clerked for Justice Stevens during the 2007 term. And Daniel Farber is the show satire professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and faculty director of Berkeley's Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. He clerked for Justice Stevens during the 1976 term. Kate, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on this important occasion. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Kate, let's begin by summing up Justice Stevens's constitutional legacy. What would you say to our listeners about the essence of his approach to the Constitution? Well, I think that he is someone who eschewed grand theories of legal or constitutional interpretation. So um, it's a hard legacy to sum up, um, and it's a hard legacy to reduce to a formula, and I think that's kind of by design. I mean, he was a consummate common law judge. So we really believe that every case should be approached on its own terms with this kind of laser focus on the facts of the case um, and building on the cases that had come before. So I think um, his methodology was very much a common law methodology, um, whatever the kind of subject matter of the case, you know, including constitutional cases. Um, I mean, I do think he believed that the Constitution's really open-ended guarantees were meant to be uh, given content by judges um, and that the document was meant to facilitate human flourishing, um, and that there was going to be some disagreement about how, you know, that would all work, um, but that when it came to figuring it all out, there was really no substitution for just the exercise of judgment. Um, Dave Posen at Columbia, I think, has a wonderful piece from 2011 um, in which he talks about Justice Stevens and the kind of exercise of judgment and the obligations of judgment. And just uh, when it came down to it, I don't think he thought that grand theories really were the answer, just kind of the hard work of judging uh, really kind of was the answer. So I think that some people found that frustrating because in the right hands, I think in Justice Stevens' hands, it led very much to just results. I think in my view, and I think in the view of people even who didn't disagree with him, didn't agree with him rather in a number of cases, um, but that in the wrong hands that that was kind of open-ended and maybe an invitation to judicial willfulness. Um, but I think he just had a lot of faith in the kind of good intentions um, and the kind of hard work of federal judges, the Supreme Court justices. Um, and I mean, I saw him sort of extend that kind of presumption of good faith and good sense to his colleagues and to his law clerks and to, you know, the lawyers arguing before him. Um, so I think that that is probably as good a summation of, of, as any, you know, he's a real common law judge. I do think, you know, when it came to statutory cases, he had a more, you know, kind of easily identifiable methodology. I think he was a purposivist, right? I think he really thought Judges should look at statutes um, with an eye to the kind of purpose or intention of the drafters. Um, and he'd look at any kind of evidence he thought might be relevant at sort of to kind of illuminate that. But sort of the purpose was always to be kind of discerned in the context of the overall statutory scheme and the overall kind of 
goals and purposes of both the particular statute and the law kind of writ large. Um, but I do think his rejection of a, a, any real labels when it came to methodology was of a piece with his kind of independence more broadly. He wasn't going to be boxed in. Um, you know, I think it was a wonderful character trait that you sort of saw manifest in a lot of different ways. Uh, and indeed, as you say, Justice Stevens was very focused on case-by-case common law adjudication and in his absolutely riveting uh, new book because it was published in May, The Makings of a Justice, Reflections on My First 94 Years. He does talk about how at the at, at, uh, law school at Northwestern, his teachers emphasized the facts of each case rather than grand theories. Dan, your thoughts on Justice Stevens's constitutional philosophy, and I'll just ask you, I, I made a stab at identifying a theme based on a wonderful interview I had with him in 2007, and that was the theme of impartiality in, in rejecting both partisan gerrymandering and firing people for patronage reasons, as well as uh, certain forms of other uh, gerrymandering. He, he emphasized the importance of government neutrality. Is that an important theme, or would you identify others? Uh, w- well, I do think uh, that's an important theme um, in his thinking. Um, and I think it fits in uh, to a sort of broader sense and belief in institutions of government uh, as not just being um, uh, partisan struggles or uh, uh, arbitrarily producing compromises or reflecting ideology, but as um, actually capable of uh, seeking the public interest. Uh, and I think for that reason, I think that fits with the purposivism that Kate was talking about because for that to make sense, you kind of have to believe that Congress as an institution isn't just making these arbitrary backroom deals as some people seem to believe, but that it actually is capable of pulling itself together and now, at least in some rough sense, seeking to further the public interest. You have to think that judges are capable of being impartial and of seeking just solutions in cases. Uh, you have to believe that the president isn't just operating with his eye to or her eye to re-election, uh, but instead, again, is trying um, uh, to uh, advance the interests of the United States. And uh, that idea of pursuing the public interest, I think, has within it the idea of impartiality because the responsibility is owed to the whole public, not just to, say, your own supporters. Kate, uh, you are the host of our sister podcast, Strict Scrutiny. I'm delighted to give a shout out to your, your wonderful show. And you also did a remarkable interview with Justice Stevens recently for SCOTUS blog, where he was so vivid about lots of topics, including the fact that when interviewing law clerks, he thought that getting along with them was really important. I always prided myself, he told you, on the ability to choose good clerks. One key element is whether I thought I'd like the person. So give us a sense of you know what he was like as a person. You could talk about your own clerkship interview or just your interactions with him in chambers, but uh, he, he, um, what was he like? You know, he, he was just a remarkably um, kind and down-to-earth and unfailingly polite, sort of gentle soul. Um, I mean, he had an unbelievable razor-sharp intellect, recall for cases and doctrine um, that just blew us away, you know, basically daily. Um, but he had this really kind of, you know, gentle and unassuming demeanor, um, and he was just, you know— um, 
a lovely and gracious boss. So he, you know, he had been on the court for over 30 years by the time I clerked for him. And yet he approached all of us, um, I think, in sort of the genuine spirit of, you know, this was a collaborative undertaking. We had opinions that were valuable and that he wanted to hear. Um, and when, you know, you have someone who's been on the court for 30 years who's saying, you know, we're, we're grappling with this, you know, Eighth Amendment case or a Second Amendment case. I mean, these are sort of big, important principles. And um, it was a little terrifying, I think, initially to be taken so seriously. Um, but then, uh, you know, I've written a little bit about um, the experience, but I think he had this kind of a transformational effect on everyone, which is he just sort of, he had really, I think he had high standards, um, but he just, um, I think he he kind of came in extending this kind of belief that you were sort of good enough to be there. And then you kind of felt like you had no choice but to be good enough to be there. And so you just kind of um, upped your game because you kind of um, had to and you wanted to work to kind of earn this faith that he had somehow decided to repose in you. Um, so he would, you know, he was he shared a lot with his law clerk. So after the conference um, in which the justices decide, you know, discuss the cases and cast their votes, um, they all returned to chambers. And not every justice was that forthcoming with law clerks. So Justice Stevens would come back and give us um, a lot of detail regarding not just the votes cast, but... Um, a lot of what had been said in, in conference, which was really, um, you know, instructive as we sort of set to working on opinions. Um, but law clerks in other chambers would then call and say, I, I heard nothing. Like, what, what did they decide and what was said? Um, and, you know, we were free to share that. Um, but I think, you know, he really did view it as this kind of collaborative undertaking. Um, you know, he did famously and, and actually draft um, uh, opinion. You know, he, he wrote the first draft of every opinion himself. Um, sometimes those were, you know, just a few paragraphs. Sometimes they were really detailed first drafts with, you know, um, sections and subsections and citations. Um, so it really depended on the case. But I think, I mean, sort of to go back to the theme of his attention to detail and fact, um, I think he found it really essential to kind of work through not just kind of the legal sort of architecture of an opinion, but but at least some of the facts to make sure that he really understood them so that he could um, be confident in the output. So he really didn't outsource that that you know first draft the way most justices do. Um, and, you know, and he and he was the only justice at the time who did not participate in the cert pool. So he, um, you know, his law clerks reviewed, we divided up and reviewed every um, cert petition. And at the time there were, you know, eight or nine thousand coming in a year. And you, you know, you skim them and you write up memos only on the ones you think he might be interested in. Um, but it was a lot of additional work for his law clerks and for him. Um, but I think he thought it was really important just as a matter of kind of the institution and its integrity that more than one set of eyes was set on every cert petition. Um, and we respected that uh, a great deal. Um, I remember once late in the term, we were, you know, jammed with finishing opinions and the certs were kind of piling up because you're doing the cert work as you're doing the opinion work. And um, he sort of wandered into chambers. And I've heard he, he did this with other law clerks too. And he saw the big pile and he said, something like, you want me to take some of the certs? I can, you know, I'll just review it myself. And we're just like, no, <laughs> let us do that, Justice. But he didn't think it was beneath him. He didn't think anything was beneath him. Um, you know, and I think that that really was the kind of justice and, and the kind of boss he was. Wonderful stories. Very striking that for much of his tenure, he was the only justice who wrote his own first drafts. And for, for a time, the only justice not in the cert pool. Now there are more. And those human stories are so Vivid, uh, Christopher Eisgruber, now president of Princeton, a former Stevens clerk, told the story recently of uh, Stevens being in a room and a woman a law clerk was asked to get coffee and he realized what was going on and he said, I think it's my turn to do that. Just an example of his thoughtfulness. Um, Dan, you were clerking for Justice Stevens during his first full term on the court. That was a time when the Burger Court was uh, if not divided ideologically, at least chafing under the leadership of Chief Justice Berger, a, a discontent that was later aired in the book The Brethren in 1979. Uh, tell us about what it was like to be with the justice as he joined the Supreme Court and how he got his sea legs on the job. Uh, yeah. Um, so 
I think in many ways the clerkship experience was very similar to what Kate uh, described. Um, I think um, to the extent that, that there were differences, um, I think one of them was uh, just the fact that at, at that point in uh, his judicial career, uh, he had not actually uh, had any occasion to think about uh, the constitutionality of the death penalty or of abortion or uh, many of the other uh, gerrymandering, many of the other issues uh, that um, uh, were already coming before the court. And so uh, he was really kind of feeling his way to a certain extent um, and uh, very open to thinking about different approaches. Uh, it, it wasn't at all clear to us, for example, how he would uh, come down on the abortion issue. Um, uh, and um, I think that that um, made it kind of an interesting time to see him kind of orienting himself. He was expected to be a fairly conservative member of the court. Uh, and um, in the Seventh Circuit, uh, particularly in criminal procedure cases, uh, he had tended to be on the government side. Um, and um, so so he was very open. He also spent, I think, uh, I'm not sure, say, at Kate's time, but um, when we were clerking, um, he was basically in chambers all day, every day of the week. Um, or at least uh, of the Monday through Friday. Um, and he was constantly popping into the clerk's office uh, with, you know, having just had an idea and wanting to bounce it off somebody. Uh, and I think that kind of uh, interchange also made it especially a, a, an exciting year to be working with him. Wow. Um, uh, remarkable experience to see the makings of uh, the justice. Kate, Dan referred to the fact that Justice Stevens was expected to be conservative. When I interviewed him in 2007, he still called himself a judicial conservative and said it wasn't he who changed, but the clerk changed around him, as in his view, every justice appointed after him, with the exception of Justice Ginsburg, was more conservative than the justice he or she replaced. Uh, one of the big areas where he seemed to change his mind was the death penalty. The Bayes case was decided the term you were clerking, and I think that represented uh, the, the moment that he changed his mind. And in his book, he says that his change of mind was also influenced by his youthful experience of seeing his father unjustly prosecuted and seeing the criminal justice system go wrong. So tell us about Bayes and Justice Stevens's evolving views about the death penalty. Sure. Yeah. And um, and in terms of his, you know, his father was um, indicted and then convicted for embezzlement when he was just a child um, after his family hotel fell into financial distress um, after the stock market crash. Um, and, you know, his father's conviction was later unanimously reversed. And I think it did um, instill in him some degree of skepticism about the output of the criminal justice process. Um, you know, he said it's a it's a good process. People try their best, but um, but it's not infallible. And when you're talking about the ultimate punishment, um, it would have to be. I think at least that's where he kind of um, ended up. And it was a, a progression. You know, he got on the court. Um, even in 1975, the court had in 1972 um, essentially put uh, in place a moratorium on the death penalty um, and then reinstated it after states, you know, uh, purported to address some of the deficiencies that have been identified um, in Furman in 1972. So in 76, the justice voted. Um, you know, to allow some of these new state capital punishment laws to go into effect. Um, and then over the course of the ensuing decades, I think, you know, really did 
I, I think, as you say, Jeff, he he always said he didn't change much. Um, um, I think that it was more the court in the country that changed. And I think that the court certainly did change. But in some areas, um, I think without question, he did change. Um, so, you know, he I think that he was part of this effort to try to limit the application of the death penalty. Um you know, in a few different ways. One, the categories of individuals who were even eligible for capital punishment, right? He either, you know, he wrote the opinion in Atkins versus Virginia, finding that um, individuals with intellectual disabilities were categorically ineligible under the Eighth Amendment for the death penalty. Um, and he, you know, voted or assigned opinions, basically reaching the same conclusion for juvenile offenders and um, non-homicide offenses. Um, um, but at the same time, saw, you know, so there were certain kind of ways in which the court sort of oversaw the narrowing of the application of the death penalty. Um, but in other areas, Things like victim um, uh, impact evidence and testimony and um, the disqualification of jurors who um, oppose the death penalty, sort of in lots of other areas, he found the court not willing to kind of mandate the kinds of limitations on the death penalty that would be required to kind of produce a system in which there could be sufficient confidence. Um, and I'm not really sure at what point kind of the switch flipped for him, but it was, you know, the opinion, the case that um, led his announcement that he had concluded that the death penalty was unconstitutional was um, Bayes versus Reese My Term, which was um, a case about a, a challenge to a lethal injection protocol. Um, so not about categories of offenders or, or really processes, but the actual, um, the kind of mechanics of execution. Um, and um, and he wrote a long opinion that sort of um, kind of detailed his experience um, with sort of, you know, observing the court's interaction with and stewardship of the death penalty um, over at that point, over, you know, just over three decades um, on the court and concluded that um, essentially the experiment had failed and that the court um, hadn't been able to um, kind of create a system or the, the states hadn't and the court, um, you know, sort of the system in general just um, wasn't working well enough um, to sort of to ju you know that the, that there there was it did not um, sort of actually achieve any of the objectives or achieve them sufficiently well that the death penalty purportedly advanced um, to kind of warrant continuing with the experiment. Um, but you know, it, but it, it wasn't a big dramatic announcement. You know, it was um it was kind of this sort of understated and very kind of classic Justice Stevens. You know, when when um, Harry Blackman announced that he had essentially reached the same conclusion, he had this um you know, I think very, very beautiful opinion that, you know, says this language no longer from this day forward, no longer shall I tinker with the machinery of death. There really wasn't anything quite like that in the Justice Stevens um, opinion in Bayes. Um, it was much more understated. Um, uh, and, you know, it did something else. So it, so it sort of concluded, it, it announced that he concluded that the death penalty was unconstitutional. But it also concurred in the in the, the chief justice's opinion, rejecting the challenge to lethal injection protocol in that case. Um because on current law, as it stood, right, the death penalty was constitutional under the Eighth Amendment. You know, he'd only he hadn't persuaded enough colleagues. It's not actually a vote I ever totally understood, um, but it meant that he continued to participate um, in the court's kind of administration of the death penalty, both in Bayes and in, in future cases, as opposed to kind of deciding to dissent in a standing way from every death penalty case. Um, so that you know, as as I think both Justice Marshall and Justice Brennan had done. Um, and so it just allowed him to kind of participate um, in the work of the court in this area in a way that I, I think maybe he felt he couldn't have done in the same fashion um, had he begun sort of to just kind of dissent in a standing way in all in all of these cases. So I think that 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 too is you know it was done he did it quite differently from others, um, um, but um, but in, in he he it, he continued to demonstrate this respect for precedent. I think in um, in the way he you know approached these cases um, subsequent to Bayes. Uh, Dan, it was in July 1976 that the court decided Gregg versus Georgia, concluding by a 7-2 to two vote that the death penalty did not violate the 8th and 14th Amendments under all circumstances, uh, reversing the holding of the Furman case four years earlier. 
Uh, is it right that Greg was decided just before you started clerking? Were there death penalty cases your term? And then tell, tell us more about both his evolving views about the death penalty and about criminal procedure generally. Um, in his book, he talks about Jurek in Texas, where he says he might have changed his vote if he knew about the facts and viewed them differently. Were, were, were his criminal procedure and criminal law cases very fact-specific, or, or did he actually become more liberal in, in other criminal procedure cases? So uh, in terms of the death penalty, uh, uh, Greg was uh, in the spring before I uh, started my clerkship during the summer, so I wasn't there for that. I think uh, even uh, the following year, he had, had started to have second thoughts about Jurek, uh, partly due to a law review article uh, criticizing the opinion in that case for um, misunderstanding uh, what uh, Texas was really doing. Um, we uh, were very fortunate as law clerks, I think, in that um, the death penalty uh, had not really had an opportunity to, to uh, start coming into effect again uh, because all, almost all the states that wanted to have the death penalty had to redo their laws in, in order to correspond to um, the court's rulings. Uh, so we were not in the situation of having, uh, you know, being repeatedly faced with these midnight uh, uh, stay order uh, requests and so forth. Uh, so um, the one death penalty case that we had was the Gilmore case, which was a, a pretty unusual case. Uh, this was a death penalty case um, in which uh, the defendant decided not to appeal the death penalty. Um, um, I so guess in from a sense of remorse, uh, and uh, he. Um, so he said he was willing to accept the death penalty, but his mother filed a petition um, for review of the death penalty. And really, uh, the, what the court had to decide was whether she had standing to do so uh, when he had decided not to uh, appeal. There was also a question about whether he was um, uh, mentally uh, um, uh, capable of making uh, that decision, but there was evidence in the record from psychiatrists that he actually uh, was not uh, incompetent. Um, and the court decided that she did not have standing. Uh, so it really didn't get ultimately to the merits of the case. Um, uh, instead, it went off on the standing ground. Uh, in criminal procedure cases, um, I think they don't really stand out in my mind from that term. The one that I remember... Uh, was one uh, uh, that involved, I, as I recall, uh, uh, the question of whether the prosecutor had um, uh, concealed evidence from a defense counsel, uh, which is a violation of the Constitution. And uh, he had originally voted to reject that claim and then discovered when he was trying to write that first draft uh, that he just could not write the draft in a way that satisfied him. So he switched his vote. Um, and um, I think Berger, um, was, who had assigned the opinion to him, was very unhappy about that. Uh, and uh, uh, he got a series of uh, really fairly dismal uh, opinion writing assignments <laughs> after that for a while. Um, but I, I didn't really see any signs in, a, in any large way that he was rethinking those issues. I think that um, 
My sense is that he had, not in the sense of a grand jurisprudential uh, reversal, but it, more in the sense of feeling more concerned about privacy issues and more concerned about uh, police abuse of authority than maybe he had been when he first joined the court. Kate, another important case decided your term was the Heller case involving the Second Amendment. And in his book, The Makings of a Justice, uh, Justice Stevens reproduced a remarkable memo that he sent to uh, Justice Scalia and his colleagues in the majority trying to persuade them to change their mind and to vote against recognizing an individual right to bear arms. He obviously felt so strongly about that uh, issue that in his book, uh, Six Amendments, he proposed amending the Eighth Amendment to ban the death penalty. Tell us more about Heller and Justice Stevens's views about why it was so important. Yeah, I, I think he, you know, he felt incredibly strongly about the case then, and and um, really in all of his years uh, after his retirement, um, it's not, you know, it's a case that he, I think, in some ways, never quite got over. Um, and he's talked about it quite extensively publicly, so um, so I do think it's fine to talk pretty freely about it um, at this point. So, um, so you know, and of course, Heller is a case in which the court five four concludes that the Second Amendment um, protects an individual right to gun ownership. And to Justice Stevens, this was um, a radical and unjustified. Uh, reversal of what had been the settled understanding of the Second Amendment um, for over two centuries. Um, so coming out of conference, so the case was argued in March, and the vote coming out of conference was 5-4. Um, but the justice really believed that the case, that that the position that this was, you know, a, a right that was tied to militia use as opposed to just, um, uh, you know, purely protected individual kind of self-defense um, uh, gun ownership was so powerful that um, – you know, potentially Justice Kennedy, potentially even Justice Thomas. Um, he he writes. Uh, he he mentions both of them in the book. Um, and that was you know he believed that 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 they could be persuaded. Um, and so he took the unusual step in um, attempting to pick up a fifth vote of. Um, circulating his draft dissent, which he hoped would become a majority opinion prior to Justice Scalia's circulation of what coming out of conference was the majority opinion. So was already fairly late in the term. Um, and so we set to work drafting um, a complete dissent that needed to beat the circulation of the majority opinion. Um, and so this meant it was a real sprint um, because Justice Stevens wanted this comprehensive uh, kind of canvassing of the historical materials and once, you know, to sort of, to see for himself sort of what the, what what he thought the record showed, how it was best read. And then, you know, when he became quite convinced that um, that his position was correct, he sort of wanted the historical material in the draft opinion. So we were sort of sprinting just in a matter of weeks to try to get some um, something done. Um, and by the end of April, you know, the date is in, the, is in his book, um, we had a draft dissent that, again, he hoped would become a majority opinion ready. And yeah, he appended this pretty extraordinary memo to the cover um, that basically said, you know, I'm not sure the rest of you appreciate just how grave an error the court is on the precipice of making, um, but it's not too late. So please take a look at the enclosed. Um, and so we sent it around um, and then it was just, you know, kind of waiting. Um, and it was over a month between the circulation of the draft dissent and the circulation of Justice Scalia's majority opinion. But, um, you know, there were some intervening kind of conversations but very quickly, Justice Scalia picked up the five votes he needed. And then um, it was, you know, a question of, um, you know, I remember when the draft majority opinion came around. It, it landed in our inboxes, like, very late one night. And it really attacked the dissent that we had circulated over a month before um, in, you know, all kinds of ways. And I remember feeling physically ill when I read it. So I read and I thought, oh, God. Um, and Justice Stevens read incredibly quickly. So about two minutes later, I had an email in my inbox that said, you know, he didn't lay a glove on us. Um, and I remember sort of going, oh, God, I don't 
actually know that expression. And so I Googled it. It's like, okay, he didn't land a punch. That's a boxing expression, right? So that's good. He didn't, you know, he didn't actually do anything to sort of call into question sort of the, the core premises of the draft dissent. So he, so he thought actually it was fine, but it, it meant that there were a lot of revisions that, you know, so Scalia, the final opinions in hell are, there's a lot of kind of doing battle in the footnotes between the Stevens and the Scalia opinions. Um, but there was much, much more sort of an earlier iteration. So it's a, you know, just in the weeks sprinting to the kind of end of the term, it was a lot of revisions back and forth um, um, with the sort of two opinions kind of doing battle, both above the line, but especially in the footnotes. Um, but, you know, but there was, that he was not able to pick up a fifth vote. And I think that that's something that, um, that really stayed with him. He remained really focused on the Second Amendment um, and the kind of grave error he thought the court had made in Heller. Dan, the justice was criticized uh, by some for calling for a repeal of the Second Amendment and for overreading Heller in the sense that Heller seemed to allow some reasonable gun regulations, uh, and many lower courts have upheld them under under Heller. Well, why, uh, why why do you think he felt so strongly about gun control? And are there other issues uh, from your clerkship that he felt especially strongly about that you want to put on the table? I don't uh, know the answer to uh, why he felt so strongly about gun control, and Kate may have more to say about that. Um, I do think that uh, uh, Heller was, uh, apart from the specific subject, kind of an affront to his belief in reasoned decision-making by the Supreme Court and respect for precedent. Um, and uh, from that point of view, I think uh, uh, sort of like Bush versus Gore, it was a, a really disturbing opinion um, uh, from his point of view. Um, the one uh, thing that I remember him being really kind of emotionally involved in when I was on the court was the uh, flag burning issue, uh, which is one where um, I think um, he um, uh, dissented uh, – more than once from Supreme Court opinions holding that flag burning was constitutionally protected speech and that um, federal statutes attempt or state statutes attempting to ban it were unconstitutional. Um, and he felt very passionately about that. Uh, at least at the time, I felt that this was, you know, perhaps related to the World War II experience um, and, um, you know, was something that maybe people of that generation, including him, uh, had a very different feeling about than, say, people of my generation. Um, but uh, he never really, at least at that time, uh, explained um, explained the reasons for uh, feeling quite so passionately about it. Uh, it was not, of course, the only time that he disagreed with the majority about a free speech issue, but it's the um, only time that at least I can recall in which uh, he seemed really kind of emotionally uh, involved in the position he was taking. Fascinating. He, he talks in his book, The Makings of a Justice, about his views on flag burning. He does note that his predecessor, Lewis Powell, on the one hand, was an extremely patriotic veteran of World War II, but on the other hand, supported a liberal reading of the First Amendment, so wondered whether Powell would have agreed with him about flag burning. I should say that I had an unsuccessful uh, clerkship interview with Justice Stevens. I had uh, written a note on the unfortunate topic, was the flag-burning amendment unconstitutional? And the justice found it uh, preposterous, both that Congress wouldn't have the power to ban flag-burning and also that an amendment to, to the Constitution purporting to ban flag-burning might violate the natural rights of uh, free speech. Um, Kate, uh, what 
you you read his remarkable book, uh, The Makings of a Justice. There's so much in it, and it's just, I think, the most riveting and candid uh, book by a sitting or retired justice about the inside story of the cases decided during uh, his term. What cases and stories leapt out to you as unusually revealing? There are so many we could talk about from Bush v. Gore to Citizens United, but I'll, I'll just let you pick. Yeah, I mean, I think Bush v. Gore definitely springs to mind. Um, you know, it's a case that listeners will obviously, uh, many will be familiar with, right? The court intervenes to essentially stop a recount in the state of Florida following the 2000 presidential election um, and fines for the Bush campaign basically on equal protection grounds. Um, I thought there was a lot that was new in the account of Bush versus Gore. Um, you know, the equal protection argument, um, just having crept in at the very 11th hour, he, he basically says there was, you know, the equal protection rationale um, in the final opinion, because, you know, there are... There's at least one um, intervening um, uh, opinion before the court sort of um, issues its final opinion in the case. But the equal protection argument kind of creeps in at the very end. And he says he doesn't think it was even discussed at conference, right? It just all of a sudden the majority and, you know, and that's part of, um, I think, what he finds so frustrating about the case. And I think he thinks, um, you know, because he, he's got a line that I, I think maybe you mentioned, um, um, Jeff, in your piece about it, and um, that he says, you know, the court basically had all of this institutional capital that it accrued Um uh, you know, generally, but he says specifically in the United States versus Nixon, when the court unanimously directs um, President Nixon to comply um, with the subpoena for the Oval Office tapes. And, you know, that unanimous um, uh, 880 opinion, right, includes some Nixon appointees and a bunch of Republican appointees. And it just really looked like the court transcended politics, um, checked an abuse of power. Um, uh, and it was, you know, I think he thinks a shining moment for the court and that in Bush versus Gore, the court really squandered that institutional capital um, and that it hasn't really recovered from um, that kind of self-inflicted blow. Um, and I asked him a little bit about it in our interview, you know, so so talk a little bit more about what it is about those two cases. Um, and he says, you know, it's the subject matter and it's the, you know, the court appearing to transcend politics, but it's also just the quality of the reasoning, right? Bush versus Gore he says it's even worse than I remembered when I reread it for this book. Um, and in part that's, you know, it was a very, it was an incredibly rushed process, right? So no really you know, sort of a fine judicial um, uh, craft is going to emerge from something that is briefed and argued repeatedly over the course of a few weeks in December. Um, but um, but he just says that the opinion just doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Um, and that's another one that I think he, um, you know, I, I think he was mostly really able, even when he was on the losing end of a 5-4 case that he thought was super important, um, to kind of put it behind him and just get it the next day and, um, you know, extend to his colleagues the same sort of goodwill that he always did. Um, and, and sort of not even in years when he lost a lot of close cases that he cared about, um, not really get sort of dejected by it or bitter or anything like that. But um, And not that he was dejected or bitter about these two, but I do think that both Heller and Bush versus Gore are cases um, that he continued to be deeply, deeply troubled by um, in, for many, many years. Thank you for uh, noting that. Justice Stevens did tell you in, in the great interview that you had the majority opinion in Bush v. Gore is even worse than I thought it was at the time. I read it over more carefully working on the book. I found that the opinion is internally inconsistent as well as just not making any sense. And then in the book, he gives this remarkable account of how the court made a factual error. He says, because things move so fast, he was unable at the time to point out a serious factual error uh, in its misunderstanding of the different versions of earlier rules that forbade the counting of dimpled chads, it's an example of the combination of his extraordinary attention to detail and his uh, frustration with the fact that Bush v. Gore was a uh, result in search of reasoning, which only emerged after the uh, decision was made. Um, 
Dan, Citizens United, we should talk about. Um, he felt that it was uh, unconvincing legally as a matter of original understanding, uh, unconvincing in terms of precedent given the uh, extensive congressional statutes regulating corporate speech dating back to the progressive era as well as being unconvincing as a matter of uh, – reasoning since he believed that uh, not only the appearance of avoiding corruption but also the desire to equalize candidates' uh, election opportunities was sufficient to justify regulation. Uh, tell us more about his dissent in Citizens United and why he cared so much about that issue. Well, I think it's important to remember that he uh, uh, had written uh, the previous uh, decision in McConnell that had uh, really uh, taken a completely opposite approach. Uh, to uh, regulation of campaign speech than Citizens United, uh, not only in the specifics of uh, the uh, issue of corporate speech, but really in the whole approach. And he had um, uh, gotten Justice O'Connor to really join him and uh, provide a majority on all that. Uh, so he had all. So I think uh, also his sense of respect for. Uh, president was involved. Um, in addition, Citizens United was uh, a case in which um, the majority had to really work very, very hard in order to get uh, itself uh, in a position to be able to make a sweeping ruling because the parties had not asked for that uh, if there were narrower grounds available. And um, so it was also a case of, uh, of the court simply kind of flexing its muscles uh, and deciding to change the law, even though it really had nothing to do with the case uh, or the arguments made by the counsel in the case before it. Um, I think that uh, perhaps uh, his views on, on um, uh, these campaign finance uh, issues can also be tied back to the uh, value that you talked about earlier that he placed on impartiality because um, I think one of the fundamental uh, concerns in dealing with corporate speech or speech by large donors and so forth is simply that government officials will not be impartial. They will be beholden to campaign contributors to corporations that have ponied up a lot of money to support them, uh, even if, if not through a direct contribution. Um, or to, you know, powerful and rich individuals who supported them. And um, in fact, the majority seemed to be quite fine with that um, and seemed to view it as just, you know, normal in the operation of government. And I, I think, um, you know, even apart from uh, some of the specific arguments about what's a compelling interest, what isn't a compelling interest, I think that really violated his sense of, you know, the ideal that democratic governments are supposed to be striving for. Kate, another important theme in his jurisprudence is the need for the judiciary to oversee the executive. And in cases from uh, Clinton and Jones, where he allowed the civil suit to proceed to the Bu Yen case decided during your term involving the war on terror, he insisted on judicial oversight of executive overreach. Tell us about Bu Yen and his general view about the need for courts to oversee the executive. Um, sure. And, you know, to, to step back just a little bit earlier, so in 2006, um, he writes the opinion in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld. Um, and, you know, so from Hamdan to Boumediene, um, these cases, right, do involve the court um, checking the executive, checking presidential power, even um, here, you know, these cases arose in the context of the war on terror. Um, and, um, and in Hamdan, 
the, the Justice Rights of Five Three opinion um, that strikes down President Bush's military commission systems um, system. And and I think some people were surprised in that you know that this decorated sort of war hero he had won you know he had been a, a naval cryptographer he had won a, a bronze star. Um, I had this military background, um, and you know, typically the commander in chief gets a good deal of deference, um, you know, in matters of sort of military judgment. Um, but um, there are limits, right? And that's, uh, I think, the principle that Hamdan stands for: um, that um, lots of deference um, in military matters doesn't mean unlimited deference. Um, and so, in the wake of Hamdan, the court passes um, the Military Commission Act, um, uh, and um, then a, a few terms later, in two thousand and eight. In the Boumediene case, the justice doesn't write but does assign to Justice Kennedy um, uh, the opinion kind of reaching the constitutional question of whether the writ of habeas corpus um, is available to detainees um, at Guantanamo Bay and finding um, that, in fact, uh, it is. Um, So I think that those two cases, you know, really do stand for kind of a – a muscular vision of the court's role, um, you know, even in, you know, in sort of ensuring that um, basic procedures and fairness um, are are present and that constitutional guarantees don't evaporate, right, even in times of um, kind of, you know, an urgent need or even in in, in the context of urgent assertions of the need to defer um, to the executive. Now, I think that, you know, there's plenty um, um, of evidence that the lower courts didn't in particular, the D.C. Circuit didn't give full expression to kind of some of the, the the principles in those cases. But in terms of Justice Stevens' role and the Supreme Court's role, um, I think those are really important um, assertions of the limitations on executive power. Dan, final question to you. Um, Justice Stevens d- filed more dissenting and concurring opinions during his time on the court than I think any other justice. Part of that, he told me in our 2007 interview, was due to his experience investigating corruption in Chicago in 1969, where he discovered that uh, in the course of investigating whether a judge had thrown a case in exchange for a bribe, one of the judges on the panel had originally written a dissenting opinion, which he'd suppressed. And Justice Stevens came to believe that had the opinion been released, then that transparency would have served the cause of justice and avoided the scandal. If you had to pick, I don't know, one or two or three of Justice Stevens' greatest and most enduring dissents, what would they be? Many of his dissents, I think, were particularly eloquent and I think um, made an effort to appeal to uh, public values. Um, I guess I would also mention his dissent in Bush versus Gore, which I I think was very powerful not only in uh, critiquing the – uh, flaws in the majority's reasoning, but in also explaining why it was that the court's decision was uh, deeply inconsistent with the fundamental values of uh, impartiality and and uh, um, use of reason uh, to make uh, decisions even in, under the most trying circumstances. Kate, if you had to name uh, one or two or three of Justice Stevens's greatest dissents, what would they be? Um, okay, so you know he was a great dissenter. He dissented more than anyone else in the history of the Supreme Court. Or wrote more separate opinions. I'm not sure about just dissents, but dissents and concurrences. Um, so there are a lot to choose from, but um, but there are a couple that I think spring to mind. Um, one is his dissent in Bowers versus Hardwick, the 1986 case in which the Supreme Court upheld um, a criminal sodomy statute, um, and Justice Stevens um, wrote um, a powerful, powerful dissent um, that 
essentially then became the law in Lawrence versus Texas in 2003 when Justice Kennedy wrote a majority opinion striking down a state sodomy statute and basically saying Justice Stevens was correct. You know, his view should have carried the day in 1986 and it does carry the day today. Um, now, he didn't write Lawrence, um, right? He you know, did this sort of, he assigned it to Kennedy. Um, but, you know, I think that his dissent in Bowers really did become, pardon me, become law um, in that case. So I think that is one. Um, I think a lesser known dissent of his that I've always thought was really powerful was his, is his dissent in uh, Harris versus McRae, which is a 1980 decision um, that upholds the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment. Um, so Roe versus Wade in 1973 um, finds a right um, to terminate a pregnancy, um, but Congress quickly passes a statute saying, okay, but if you're an um, you know an indigent an indigent woman receiving Medicaid funds, no federal money can be spent paying for an abortion. Um, and that case, the constitutionality of that law was challenged, um, and in 1980 the court upheld the Hyde Amendment. And there are you know it's a five four. Um, uh, decision and there are four separate dissents, but Justice Stevens, I think, is an especially powerful dissent. Um, and then he, let me just mention one that I sort of on a lighter note that is from a 2007 case um, called Morse versus Frederick, but is sometimes referred to as the Bong Hits for Jesus case. Um, involved some students who had a, a like a sign at a school parade that said Bong Hits, you know, sort of inscrutable sign that said Bong Hits for Jesus, and then they were suspended for. Um, you know, advocating drug use, I guess. Um, and the court um, sided with this principle and permitted the suspension consistent with the First Amendment. And Justice Stevens dissented, um, you know, sort of on First Amendment grounds, but then had this like sort of funny aside about the importance of kind of speech about, you know, pressing public matters and marijuana policy is one of them. And then he talks about, um, you know, having been a child during prohibition and there being certain similarities between the, the, the nation's current, um, you know, treatment of marijuana, um, you know, that sort of nominal illegality, but widespread use and all this kind of uncaptured tax revenue that could be captured if in fact it was just legalized. Um, and he sort of draws like an analogy to prohibition, which of course he remembers because he was a child during prohibition. And so it's just, there are a handful of opinions in which he sort of makes points that only Justice Stevens, by virtue of having live through so much of American history could possibly make, um, and that that was definitely one of them. Thank you so much, Kate Shaw and Daniel Farber, for a moving, rich, and meaningful appreciation of one of the Supreme Court's longest-serving and greatest justices. Kate, Daniel, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for inviting us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and Jackie McDermott, and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by the National Constitution Center's Constitutional Content Team. The homework of the week, listen to Kate Shaw's great podcast, Strict Scrutiny, and read Daniel Farber's wonderful books, uh, Lincoln's Constitution, I think the best book I've read about uh, Lincoln's constitutional vision, and also Judgment Calls, which he co-wrote with Susanna Sherry about Supreme Court decision-making. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for weekly constitutional debate. And remember, always, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people like you across the country and across the world who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Mm-hmm.